Hi everyone, I'm Aaron Green, head of SAP Success Factors across Asia Pacific and Japan, and welcome to today's episode of People People Unfiltered. Each episode, I sit down with extraordinary business leaders to discuss all things people experience. If today's podcast sounds a little bit different, the quality might not be as crisp, please bear with us. With social distancing measures in place, recording processes just look a little bit different these days. I'm coming to you from my home in Sydney, Australia, while our next guest joins us from Singapore. And today's discussion is incredibly timely, one that I think all of us will gain a lot of value from. First, we're really going to talk about what sets great leaders apart and the importance of self-care for leaders in during draining times or times of a lot of change. Now, let me t- introduce today's incredible guest, Eugene Chang. Eugene is a partner in the strategy and organization team at Corn Ferry and is an executive coach with over 20 years experience. Eugene's strength lies in working with business leaders to design and implement integrated human capital solutions from business strategy and organization design all the way through to cultural transformation and change. Hi, Eugene. Thanks so much for joining us today. With your experience as a leader and and the insights that you've gained from working with a lot of inspirational leaders in your time at Corn Ferry, I'm really fascinated to, to hear your perspective on what great leadership looks like, especially during a time of a ton of change or crisis. So so I guess my question for you is, you know, when organizations are going through such tumultuous times or so much change, what are the what are the right tools and what are the strategies that they need to put in place so that the organization can thrive, but equally importantly so that that the employees can thrive inside the organization. Thanks so much for having me. Um Really, I, I think that uh, great leadership comes in many forms and there's nothing better than a crisis actually to show forth, you know, what leadership really is all about. Um, you can see clearly the distinctive behaviors that are different from a great leader and one that's just, you know, managing the numbers are leaders who actually care about uh, the organization. Uh, they think a lot beyond the crisis. Um, they come in with a lot of preparedness. Um, they may not have first seen the crisis per se, but they have been constantly investing, I would say, in their capabilities, in their people, in their culture, long before the crisis hit them. Most of them come in um, with a lot of experience, some of them even with uh, having tackled SARS before, other crises, um, you know, 911. Uh, these are leaders who've seen what it takes to, to make your way through and I firmly believe that the whatever your challenge, the surest way forward is through your people. So um, really, um, these are the ones who have empathy. Um, they project confidence, but also a humility that you've not seen <laughs> in many people. And they'll say, I don't understand. I don't, I've never seen this before, but we'll get through this together. And so um, those are the greatest leaders that I've met so far in, in the work that we've done. Yeah, that's uh, I love hearing that. You know, I I heard a quote the other day, and and I, I'm not going to pretend this is my own. This fully came off of the TV series, uh, but it it really has resonated with me so much over the last few weeks. And the quote goes something along the lines of, uh, "Fear is not what makes people fail; it's hesitation that makes people fail." And I think you know, in in this kind of COVID nineteen era that we're living in right now and that is our shared timeline around the world. I think the hesitation from a leadership point of view is the thing that is going to either make or break incredible leaders and help them lead organizations to success. Uh, And so much of that is just kind of wrapped up in individual motivation as a leader 
and how you take that individual motivation and you keep moving forward and therefore take your team along that journey. Uh, what are your thoughts in terms of how you, as a leader, stay individually motivated to, to drive great performance? Well, there were actually two interesting uh, points that you made. The first one was that you got to keep moving forward and it's about being decisive uh, in the situation. And uh, most leaders uh, who are fearful of making mistakes uh, or who, who need a lot of data and can only move with the right amount of data, um, they actually um, put their organizations at risk simply because they are paralyzed uh, and not able to move in a situation that's ambiguous. So being willing to make mistakes and saying, you know, let's try something different, knowing that we can pivot very quickly is more important than just saying, um, I don't have enough data. I'm not really sure if this is the right path to go down. Um, and so for, for an individual leader to have the confidence to do that, I think there are um, a few things they have to think about. One is that you must have confidence in your team. So most of them who move forward um, in a great way um, actually have a lot of empowerment in the way they lead their teams. And they help their teams to basically um, make decisions at their own levels. Mm. Um, and what they do is they look forward uh, a little bit and ask the right questions. Um, so their job is not to know the answer. Their job is to figure out what are the uh, scenarios or the uh, new things that could come in play in the next 6, 12, 18 months. Um, and confidence largely comes around, one, on the team, and two, um, in how they view capacity in terms of what they can learn and what they can get out of this. Right. If you, if you think that you know the answers, um, then you would never... Uh, go down an experimental route. Yeah, that's that, that's a really good point. Um, and by the way, the the TV program, just so that I can be fact checked uh, after the fact, is uh, it's called The Midwife, which oh, and I know sounds ridiculous, but I'm really obsessed with that show right now. And uh, it. it turns out in lockdown, uh, I've got a lot of free times to catch up on series of TVs or series of TV. That's great. Uh, but, you know, Eugene, one of the things you, you just really t uh, touched on, and I, and I just want to tease that out a little bit, is that idea of moving forward, but also that idea of empowerment, because both of those things and, and really that, that level of empowerment ties so closely to resilience and making sure that not just a leader is resilient, but that a leader is actually building a resilient business. And that looks at all aspects, whether it's the people, your partners, your customers, uh, it, just everything that goes into the organization. A lot of leaders, in my experience, don't know how to natively have that level of resiliency. In in what you've done at Corn Ferry and in your career, I'd be really curious, you know, how what are the characteristics of truly resilient leaders? And more importantly, as leaders today are grappling with a lot of change, what would you say are the things that they need to put in place to create some of that resilience for themselves? The first thing we need to do is we need to figure out what is resilience. So many of us think that resilience is, um, well, I used to think when I was running my own business, um, I used to think, you know, being resilient is, you know, sticking through thick or thin, you know, making sure you're never giving up. And no matter how many times you get knocked down, I'm coming back up again. Um, but that's not really resilience, is it? Um, there could be stubbornness, 
and yeah. on my part. Um, <laughs> but being resilient really is, um, it's actually not being strong and rigid, like an oak tree in a storm. Being resilient is being like a bamboo, mm. flexing in the wind. And so if you really want to be resilient in your organization, you have to build in shock absorbers, the ability for you to be agile. So we talk a lot about in our, um, in our work, about this concept called learning agility. Um, and the only way that you can be truly resilient is to perhaps be fixated on the goal, but not on the path. And so you're agile and you're able to find your way um, a new route to get to where you need to get to with the new skills, the new mindset, the different way of working with people or looking at things. So that mental agility, the ability to look at change or even working with different types of people, that kind of capability is what we look at as resilience. I love that metaphor of uh, resilience is not the oak tree, but it's the bamboo that, that flexes. I really love that. And I think, you know, right now where we are in the world, you know, here it is, what, May of 2020, uh, we have a lot of leaders for whom what they thought the goal was is really different than, or, you know, what, what the goal was maybe even two or three months ago is really different to what the goal is today. And so I agree with you that that, that need to be agile in, not just in the way that you act, but also in the way that you think is just so incredibly critical to to navigate through times of change. Uh, yeah, so thank you for that metaphor. I'm fully going to steal that, by the way. No problem. I, I, I'd like to add that um, when we respond to the crisis, there's a lot of need for um, leaders to work well with the next level and to listen um, to what's happening on the ground because you're quite mm -hmm. far removed, especially in a remote situation or remote teaming situation. And um, that's why empowerment comes in so importantly uh, in this whole setup, right? Because they're closest to the customer, they're closest to the employees. And what we really need is for them to be able to figure things out on the ground and respond quickly. And your role isn't quite so much about telling them what they need to do, but marshalling the resources that are available at the organization level, um, maybe even across boundaries, across departments and teams. Um, and helping support them through that. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, I'll draw a parallel with my own kind of recent experience. Uh, I, I help lead our business continuity team. And we've specifically not called it a crisis management team just because the word crisis uh, evokes kind of a subliminal or response or fear-based response. But it's been incredible working with uh, a group of individuals from across our business, whether it's HR or legal, finance uh, to to make sure that what we are doing is listening to the needs of our people, you know, as we've shifted to a digital workforce and that we aren't making decisions in isolation. We're actually making decisions based on, firstly, obviously, government advice and you know what the regulations are, but we're really making decisions based on what our people are telling us they need or they want. And we're trying to do that, you know, really on a weekly basis and be really adaptive to to the needs of our people because it's quite diverse. We're we're really lucky, right? We have Absolutely. a you know we're in the we're in the IT business. We we kind of understand how to move to remote working and things like that. But there are a lot of companies and organizations out there for whom remote work, where we are right now, is a massive disruption to to their ability to serve their customers. 
have, have you been talking to any leaders who are, who are grappling with that right now? Actually, yes. Um, so in, in, in my research, um, I you know picked up the phone and I said, look, I wanted to talk to a mix of, of clients. Um, some were you know multinational companies who could transition quite easily, but mm. others were smaller companies, um, local companies. Uh, maybe they had 20 outlets. Um, you know, a, a furniture um, client was uh, was just recounting. You know, she was, uh, and this was the, the GM, and she was really quite happy that um, she actually um, automated some of her processes just prior to this happening. Um, it wasn't because of COVID, but it was just, you know, they wanted to do some productivity improvements. In fact, um, it was quite by happenstance. So you can, you can imagine, like two about a year and a half ago. She had seven of her staff, including herself, uh, on maternity leave. Right, so they figured, look, we we need to be more productive um, from home, and so they started to put in new processes, IP telephony, you know, a couple other you know remote project management tools. And when COVID hit, um, she said, you know, she's so lucky to have had to go through that experience a little bit ahead of the curve, and so the preparation. Um, helping her manage her teams with um, objectives rather than, you know, looking at their task on a day-to-day basis. Simple things like that, people um, forget <laughs> that, yeah. you know, it's it's really how you can start to slowly empower people. And, and what I've noticed is that her original culture was very, very um, low power distance. You could argue with her, even though she was the second generation leader, right? And um, no hard feelings. And what happens is that you get a lot of more innovation. And so even when you are in a distributed model, um, most of the HQ was back home. A few people were still in the in the production side of the house, um, but they were working really well. So she leaned into a culture, actually. And that's fascinating, right? Being able to, I mean, it sounds like just kind of by luck, uh, that organization was able to be set up a year, year and a half ago, to to be able to to work remotely, but that, that's and the difference. It wasn't it wasn't luck per se, although you could say that it was you know um, different scenarios that put her in this position, but it was being forward thinking about things, mm. and investing ahead in capabilities and in making her people more productive over time. So not quite so direct, but you're right. You still need a leader in a way to have that openness. To say I'm willing to invest in organizational level capabilities, team level capabilities, in order for them to be better prepared. And, and I, yeah, I, I fully agree with that. I did want to pick up on something you said around not monitoring or managing people based on their tasks, but changing things to managing based on objectives. I think you know, for a lot of HR leaders out there and a lot of people in culture leaders, we, you know, we always talk about of an objective-based goal model, right? Smart goals, you know, if we go back 10, 15 years ago, it was, you know, we called them smart goals, but but now it's really, I think it is around managing objectives. Do you think that that's more important right now in a time of big change or crisis to, to kind of pivot away from task management to objective management? Oh, absolutely. In fact, um... Because the situation is changing so quickly, you probably couldn't update your KPIs fast enough. Yeah. Um, they, they, this particular company, we can say, had to shut down all their retail outlets. And the only thing they had running for them was their e-commerce business, which was just set up not too long ago. 
they saw a 400% spike in business and they had to reallocate people from the retail side of the house into production to fulfill those orders, right? And, 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 and take on roles in customer service, which they um, were not doing before. So do you set up new KPIs for them? When you're fighting for survival, it's about coming together and these processes are important, but they're not everything. So you go back to what's really important and trust that the system will work later to recognize you for your hard work. I mean, no KPI system, no performance management system is perfect. The only reason why they work is because there's trust in the humans that manage the system. That's, I, that, that is very, that is absolutely spot on. Uh, and, and I love that example. I mean, you know, we're seeing cases of, um, of hospitality, like restaurant venues in Australia, you know, where their, their business models, I mean, let's not talk about being disrupted. Their business models have been shut down for the last few months. It's and that is, well, and that's, it's absolutely heartbreaking for, you know, employees and their families and the community. But we've, what we've seen in some cases are actually these restaurants taking their front of house wait staff and repurposing them into takeaway and delivery drivers. Oh, absolutely. And and, business, right. That's being creative with the absolutely. resource you have. Um, Singapore Airlines, they put um, airline stewardesses um, in hospitals to be ambassadors there. Wow. Um, service culture shines through anywhere. Right. And yeah. you have, um, I think, hoteliers in Singapore making their um, property available for COVID patients for recovery. Um, okay. So, you know, people are just repurposing what they can do. I've, I've uh, seen um, a small business who does bags and other kinds of, you know, fashion wear, and they started making masks. I mean, you can see luxury houses in France doing uh, sanitizers where they used to do perfumes. Yep. So a lot of people are really starting to think differently. And I think the best thing that COVID has done for us is to break some uh, biases and mindset uh, blockages. Um, we used to think it's impossible to do um, really good work over virtual, right? Uh, most people said, no, forget it, right? But um, now that you're forced to do it, you open up a whole world of possibilities. I think the new world will look very, very different. Yeah, I, I do too. And, you know, it's it's interesting. I think, you know, so the example you used, like the luxury conglomerates, I know LVMH, you know, early on repurposed their perfume lines or manufacturing lines in France to make sanitizer for the Absolutely. French public health system, which is amazing. And I think there's, some of it is a fight for survival for these organizations. I mean, I would argue LVMH, it's probably not a fight for survival. True. Uh, in, in other cases, I think it's really a stand for keeping their employees engaged and keeping them working and keeping them employed to the best possible extent. And you're absolutely right, whether that means reskilling them to do something that they've really never been skilled to do before or enabling them to, to just change the way or the nature of their work. Uh, that's a huge disruption for a lot of people, but it's 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 kind of heartwarming and quite fascinating to see the ways in which organizations are adapting their business model to uh, to suit the current times. I think so. And it's, it's sometimes in these cases less about making money and you know getting cash flow it's really more about um getting their employees involved in what their culture stands for uh, and how they can contribute contribute back to society 
um, I think it's just fantastic. And you know, if they can rally around, you know, a common mission. Um, I've heard leaders say that they had uh, staff working from home who were completely demoralized because they had nothing to do. <laughs> they, you know, they, they, uh, they, they were working from home, um, but they had no real work to do. And so she had to find ways to engage them and keep them um, feeling a part of the company still. Right. And so yeah. you know, this would be perfect if you could find a way to get your staff involved in other activities outside. If you don't need their time, um, say at the factory floor or whatever, then um, do a couple of things. Um, I've had leaders tell me that they would double down on training and development during this space. Yeah. So we know, for example, that the competition curve using um, the language of the times is actually flattening out. Mm -hmm. And what happens is that you can take advantage of this flattening of the competition curve to come out of it, come out of the turn, um, accelerating and being ahead of the competition. And right. the only way you can do that is through two things. You invest in your people or you invest in uh, new projects. Um, so that same company shared that she's made 20 new R&D projects so that by the time this crisis is over, she would probably have new products um, in the market. And so she redirected resource to investing ahead um, and looking beyond what's happening in the crisis right now. Going back to that bamboo example, right, of resilience. That's, resilience. that's understanding that there is an end point, but the way that you get there is, <laughs> is very different than you might have thought it was going to be. Absolutely. Uh, Eugene, I'm curious, what's your perspective on the role or what employers and really what people leaders should be doing for their staff, who have been stood down or furloughed during this time because i you know i kind of foresee and let's use you know aviation or retail or hospitality as an example where large numbers of the workforce have just unfortunately been put out of work but you know as to your point you know the the competition curve hopefully as things start reopening we will see many of these businesses um, start staffing back up what, what's the role that a leader needs to do in communicating and engaging people who have been stood down or furloughed so that we don't find ourselves in a situation where things start opening back up, but there's actually no employment for people or no employees? So I'm, I'm curious what, what strategies you'd give or advice you'd give. I think the, the person that stands out best in how they've handled this was um, Airbnb. So recently there was an open letter um, that was published. Um, I think we got our ex, you know, everybody gets access to these little communications in leakages in the internet, but essentially- There's no private, there's no privacy there's in 2020. No privacy anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but essentially he, he was, he was um, very empathetic and he, he was heartbroken that he had to let, you know, people go. Um, and he saw them as family. He saw them as um, strong contributors to the organization. And he wanted to make sure that it wasn't about performance. It wasn't about anything else about these people who, you know, 24 hours ago, <laughs> delivering great work. And suddenly you, you have to furlough them simply because, you know, the business just cannot take on the, these costs. So um, I think they were human about the way they went about this. Mm -hmm. They were considerate and they were trying to provide all kinds of support um, to make sure that these um, brothers and sisters, if I may, um, were properly uh, taken care of as they transitioned. So 
just be human, I think. It's yeah. probably the best advice. Yeah, it's, uh, be human is great advice. Yeah, but I, I, you know, you could, you could have a variety of schemes that you could put in place, um, outplacement schemes, um, retraining, reskilling, all of these things will be um, important for them to, to receive. Yeah, you know, I saw um, in the spirit of nothing is private in the year 2020, uh, I can't remember which airline it was, but there was um, a memo circulated by the CEO talking about stand downs or, or furloughs or layoffs. And there was this really human characteristic to it where the CEO said, anybody who's been affected by this and, you know, who's been furloughed or, or laid off, you will have absolute priority of rehiring if and when our business gets back to the state of being able to do that. And I think something is, you know, some people could view that as a bit of a throwaway sentence, but actually saying that and then delivering on it, if and when they're able to, that goes a really long way to give people not just a feeling of certainty about the future, it goes a long way for delivering an employer value proposition. And, Absolutely. you know, it, it is that human aspect of it. Yeah, most most CEOs um, manage the business maybe too much from a financial angle um, because they're so far removed from the day-to-day -day, uh, teams that, you know, build the company and made it great. And so, you know, for a CEO to be able to do that, to be, you know, close to the team, to live out the values of the organization, I think it's going to build a longer-term value um, for the business. Yeah, I, I completely agree. You know, uh, this conversation makes me think of, I was, uh, I had the fortune of working at PeopleSoft uh, many years ago, and we reinvented the, the HR category. So it was no longer HR software, it became HCM, human capital management software. And now, obviously, at SAP, we've renamed it to human experience management. But I remember uh, when we when we called it human capital management, and that was quite revolutionary. The, the kind of talk track was, you know, people are your most important asset. And it's just really funny to now look 15 years later, we would never think of talking about people as assets. And in, yes. in, in fact, you know, people are not desk chairs, right, that, you, that depreciate over time. People are the fuel that powers an organization forward. And it's kind of that collection of experiences that people have and the, the value proposition that the employer delivers that that actually keep an organization moving forward. And even more so, you know, it's, lo it's no longer going to be uh, a scenario where we have to have a contract to be um, giving up or exchanging our talent for services. You know, the culture will be the one thing that attracts talent to your organization. And instead of saying I have to acquire that talent, I would be needing to think about how can I access that talent, right? It may not be on my books. He may be, you know, someone who's a very, very good expert, but he just doesn't want to be tied down to a, a, a you know, a formal contractual relationship with us. Um, yeah. Just maybe on a simple project basis, on the gig economy. So how can I access talent um, without that contract and still make them feel like they're part of something bigger, part, part of your organization? So we need to figure out a different way of running companies. Sure. I completely agree. And you know what's, uh, it's, it's almost scary. It's like you're maybe listening in on all of the calls that I'm making. But I had this, uh, I had uh, the opportunity to 
to speak with the CHRO of Tata Communications a, a few weeks ago, and uh, a gentleman by the name of Adesh, and he's he's really not only see the you know head of people, um, he also is a, a happiness coach, but oh one which is you know in my next life I will be a happiness coach. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it sounds awesome. Uh, but one of the one of the things that he talked about was this kind of new wave of employment that he thinks, and you know, it may not be here today or tomorrow, but it kind of goes beyond the gig economy. It's this idea that we may start seeing employees enter into work contracts with us that are almost like a master services agreement, mm. and where your pay is tied to outcomes that you deliver. Uh, and that you know. It'll be interesting to see if that is actually the next kind of evolution of the gig economy, because the gig economy, you know, as you pointed out, is really around how do you work on a project basis. Uh, but I wonder if we will start seeing kind of in a post-COVID era, people entering into employment relationships based on agreed pay for for specific outcomes. Interesting. Very nice. I like that. Yeah, it was. Uh, it definitely got my brain going. Capabilities you must have. Can you can you imagine the type of engagement capabilities you must have to oh, yeah. bring all of these people alignment in the, in terms of alignment of of uh, the mission, um, feeling part of this you know yep. the, the bigger thing, right? So how do you get all of these different types of um, I guess talents yeah. in on the same game? Exactly, and you know you will have a mixture of maybe a gig worker plus somebody under kind of a master services outcome-based contract plus your full-time staff plus, you know, contingent labor that you might have in that would play a critical role and how you, you'll have, we will have to think about re-skilling re or, or gearing everybody around the same objective in a very different way. And I would think that this would have a huge impact on the type of leaders that you need for tomorrow. 100%. And I think that the, you know, I think the leaders of tomorrow, as you've really quite eloquently said, are the ones who need to not be the oak trees. They need to be the bamboo that shifts in the wind and and be resilient in that way. Um, yeah. I just wanted to share that um, I'm, I'm highly obsessed with this concept called um, human capital maturity. Uh, and okay. I think this is something that you need to think about when you're running your organization. So most, most leaders think about it in terms of, you know, my business model and my strategy. And the other leg of your stool that you should be building um, is a strong human capital maturity. And that involves all the different human capital processes, um, everything from um, human capital technology, um, mm -hmm. all the way down to your strategic workforce planning, L&D, et cetera, et cetera. So the ability to bring all of these things together to support the strategy, um, is where I see strategy execution really coming together in the best way possible. That's that's a really incredible point, right? Because it speaks to organizational resiliency and readiness. It's yes. it's yeah, you know, that speaks to the upskilling, the workforce, the the well, leadership okay. strength and the bench, uh, or the bench strength and development. That's I really like that. And I will always give you credit for human capital maturity. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, Eugene, I just really can't thank you enough. Um, I've learned a lot from this chat. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm already thinking through how I, for my own leadership team, uh, start describing not being the oak tree, but being the bamboo and and being resilient and and having a, a clear goal 
and working towards that as a team. So, so genuinely, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Aaron, for having me, um, having Con Ferry. Um, I just really want to thank you for making this um, pleasurable and experience. <laughs> thank you so I'm much. Glad, I'm, glad it, I'm glad it wasn't painful. Thank you.